It's that time of year, the Menopause Society Annual Conference. Two weeks ago, the menopause mavens from all over the world gathered in Philly for five days of lectures, symposiums, panel discussions, and presentation of new research. And of course, socializing, lots of socializing. And I'm going to take you there. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. Everyone assumes that a menopause conference is going to be dry, but menopause experts are a surprisingly wild bunch. Socializing aside, It is also one of my busiest weeks. Aside from catching up with people I only see once or twice a year and trying to attend as many talks as possible, I moderated a morning of lectures and then gave my own lecture on postmenopause orgasmic dysfunction. I was also really busy this year meeting with menopause colleagues who will be speaking at my new Mastering Menopause Getaway series. I am launching a series of menopause retreats. The idea of doing menopause retreats was inspired by a recent article in the New York Times about the current trend for menopause vacations. I was interviewed for that article and did some digging to see what those retreats were offering. Bottom line, they weren't offering much in the way of actual information or solutions. Most of them were just nice spa vacations with weird activities packaged to appeal to women having menopause symptoms. One of them bragged about a fire ritual to, quote, celebrate the ritual of transformation. I would love to have been in the room with whoever planned that activity. Hey, let's take women who are having horrendous hot flashes and celebrate by having them sit around a fire for an hour or two. As I told the reporter, you can't get rid of vaginal dryness by drinking a smoothie and getting a massage. Women need real solutions. And then I had the aha moment. I should be the one to offer women accurate information from real experts while having an amazing vacation experience. Fortuitously, this brainstorm came to me just before I joined my colleagues in Philly Week for our annual Menopause Society Conference. So I asked all my favorite menopause mavens if they would be willing to be part of this venture. And every single one of them responded with an enthusiastic yes. And just like that, Mastering Menopause Getaway was born. So what Differentiates Mastering Menopause Getaway from other menopause retreats is access to the leading menopause experts. You know, the people that teach in universities, do research, and run menopause clinics. In other words, this is going to be a goop-free zone for women that want real information and real solutions. The first Mastering Menopause Getaway will be February 9th through 12th, just outside Tucson, Arizona, at the truly beautiful Marival Resort, where our group will gather, bond, learn, and enjoy the breathtaking surroundings while taking advantage of all Marival has to offer. You'll learn the latest about perimenopause and menopause in a beautiful setting with fabulous food and no end of activities from hiking to cardio drumming to bird watching. So please join me for an exceptional and unique travel experience. If you're interested in more information or to register, go to drstriker.com or check the link in the program notes. I'm limiting this first experience to 35 attendees and it's filling quickly, but there are spots left. So back to the conference. There's basically three groups of people that attend these conferences. First, There are the key opinion leaders in menopause, the folks that give the lectures and present research. 
The second group are clinicians that know a lot about menopause and attend these conferences regularly to learn what's new. And then there are the first timers, clinicians that are completely new to the menopause world. I talked to a lot of attendees and asked them all pretty much the same question. Tell me something you've learned that you did not know before. Because I was catching people on the fly, the sound wasn't great, and I did have to dump a lot of really good interviews, but I managed to capture enough that will get you a glimpse into what the hot topics were and what's new in our world. But before I get to everyone else's comments, I'm going to start with five of the things I learned during the conference. Number one, a really interesting study was presented regarding abnormal pap tests in perimenopausal women. In this study, the majority of low-risk perimenopause women who had an abnormal pap test was not because of cervical precancer or cancer, but rather because of dryness from lack of estrogen, which made the cells on the pap test look abnormal. Basically, it was a false positive. And when these women with abnormal PAPs were treated with a local vaginal estrogen, in 96.7% of them, their subsequent PAP test was normal. And this finding was a result of a big study. There were 1,500 perimenopausal women with abnormal PAPs that were included. And a lot of them ended up getting unnecessary colposcopies and biopsies when the only thing wrong with them was genital urinary syndrome of menopause. So the takeaway is if kind of out of nowhere, you suddenly have an abnormal pap for the first time when you're peri or post-menopause, you should be checked for genital urinary syndrome of menopause and treated with a local vaginal estrogen followed by a repeat pap. Because in the majority of these cases, using the local vaginal estrogen will turn an abnormal pap test into a normal pap test. Number two, in a terrific lecture given by Dr. Honingberg, he highlighted how reproductive history impacts later cardiovascular risk. It's not news that factors like smoking, family history, and obesity increase the risk of having cardiovascular disease, but it's not commonly known that hormonal transitions throughout life, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, pregnancy complications like diabetes or preterm labor, and earlier surgical menopause are also associated with cardiovascular risk later in life. He also mentioned the association between hot flashes and heart disease, but that's something I talk about all the time and not news to me. But the connection with polycystic ovarian syndrome was really interesting and highlighted once again that hormones affect the heart. Number three, also on the topic of hot flashes, Dr. Daniela Hurtado gave a lecture on weight management midlife and confirmed with new data that treating hot flashes with hormone therapy will help women lose weight. And in addition, hormone therapy helps metabolic parameters. She also reminded everyone that a lot of medications that are used midlife promote weight gain. Gabapentin, clonidine, and paroxetine are on that list. Her lecture also included a review of all the new obesity drugs out there, with the conclusion that semaglutide was of all of them, the most effective at helping women lose weight. And this is the big headline. Taking semaglutide reduced cardiovascular events by 20% in people with established cardiovascular disease who are overweight. In other words, people that were very high risk for heart disease, not only did they lose the weight, but they were 20% less likely to have a cardiovascular event. That's huge, huge. But she also emphasized that if semaglutide is stopped, the weight comes back. Obesity is a chronic disease that requires lifelong treatment. 
Number four, skin and aging. Loved, loved, loved this lecture given by Dr. Ellen Gendler. I'm not going to give too much of what she said away because she's agreed to come on as a guest and do a whole episode with me on how to keep your skin looking fabulous. But I did love her photo gallery of identical twins that she used to demonstrate the difference that lifestyle makes on skin aging, even when someone is genetically identical. You know, twin one stayed out of the sun and at age 70 looked 20 years younger than her identical twin who ditched the sunscreen and hung out at the beach or the twin that one was a lifelong smoker and looked like her sister's mother. Pictures like that really drive the point home. She also answered a question I've been asked. I know that women who take estrogen to treat hot flashes have less wrinkles. And I know that women that apply estrogen to their skin have less wrinkles. But I wasn't sure if there was any benefit to doing both. But Dr. Gendler cited one study that showed that the use of topical facial estrogen in women who were already taking hormone therapy had additional benefit, particularly in that saggy skin under the eyes. Not really surprising given that women who are taking hormone therapy often will benefit from additional vaginal estrogen, but nice to see a study that supported it. Anyway, stay tuned for more from Dr. Gendler. Number five, Dr. Jessica Caldwell gave a fabulous lecture on dementia and Alzheimer's in women. One of my favorite slides was a list of 12 things that cause up to 40% of cases of dementia, things that have nothing to do with genetics, hearing loss, less education, smoking, depression, social isolation, air pollution, hypertension, physical activity, diabetes, alcohol, and obesity. So check your hearing, move to the country and go to lots of parties, but don't drink too much alcohol at those parties and take estrogen. It wasn't on that slide, but it was on other slides. And I talk about that in my episode on Alzheimer's and estrogen. Those were the five things that were top of my mind after the conference, but there's so much more. Here's what other attendees had to say, starting with Dr. Lisa Larkin, the person who was in charge of putting together the entire conference, the theme, the topics, and most important, who would be invited to speak. Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Larkin. I'm a women's health internist in Cincinnati, Ohio, and this year I'm honored to be the 2023 Scientific Program Chair for the annual meeting of the Menopause Society. As Program Chair, I get to pick the theme of the meeting and then work with the entire committee of which you are part of, Dr. Stryker, to pick the topics for the plenary symposia and to invite the speakers. And we really vet and choose the speakers. And the theme this year was... So precision medicine and midlife women's health. So there's really exciting science in terms of how we can better personalize care to an individual patient based on their genetics and lots of other factors to improve the quality of the care that they receive. This year, you offered some very specialized content to address specific interests. This year, yes, we had Menopause 101, but we also offered Breast 101, Medical Breast and Genetics 101. So these were two courses now before the meeting began where we do an intensive dive into breast cancer risk and prevention and where the state of the science is, um, including genetics. What was the number one message that you hope attendees from the breast course will take home with them? 
The number one message is that when you are a clinician taking care of patients, to recognize that the women sitting in front of you do not all have the same risk of developing breast cancer and that there are models and ways that we can help estimate a woman's risk in the same way we estimate their risk of developing heart disease. We need to do a better job of talking to women about ways to lower their risk and making sure that they're getting enhanced screening when it's appropriate and medication to lower their risk when it's appropriate. Lisa Larkin also happens to be the incoming president of the Menopause Society. And if you would like a mini version of the content that Dr. Larkin presented at the conference, check out episode 28, The Best Approach to Breast Screening and Risk Reduction. I also want to mention that Dr. Larkin will be one of the experts at my first Mastering Menopause Away in February. Stephanie Phobian is another name that's probably familiar to you because she's also been a guest on this podcast twice episode 22, Dreaming of Sleep, and episode 90 on achy joints. Dr. Phobian serves as the medical director for the Menopause Society and just released a book, The New Rules of Menopause. Dr. Phobian, you taught Menopause 101 this year. What is the main message you want a clinicians new to menopause to walk away with? It's okay to use hormone therapy. Practitioners who are not used to using hormone therapy are scared of it. Women are undertreated uh, in general for their menopause symptoms, and there are lots of options, and it doesn't have to be hormone therapy, but for the majority of women who are under the age of 60 and within 10 years of menopause onset and who are having bothersome symptoms, hormone therapy is an option. Give an example of a question that you got during the Q&A that made you realize just how much misinformation is out there and is being given to patients from their doctors. Do you still have to do three months of non-hormonal therapy and have people fail it for them to consider hormone therapy? And we're like, where did that come from? No, you don't have to go through non-hormonal therapies for three months and fail it before you get to hormone therapy. So yes, there's a lot of misinformation. Dr. Andrea Singer. I am an internist and a bonehead with a focus on osteoporosis at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Singer. You presented your research as to how best to approach the treatment of osteoporosis in terms of not only what works best, but what's the most cost-effective way to choose which drug should be given first. So oftentimes, you know, insurance companies or other payers like us to start with medications that are less expensive. Um, but this analysis actually looks at whether starting with a bone-building medicine, what we call an osteoanabolic medicine, and following it with one of our mainstays of therapy that helps to prevent bone loss is more cost-effective and better than starting with that anti-resorptive or medicine that helps to prevent bone loss. And essentially, in both men and women in the U.S., the study showed that it was cost-effective to do this. We have clinical data that tells us it's the right thing to do, but it costs a little bit more, and so it needed to be balanced by does it make a difference in terms of outcomes. And does it? It does. So it actually is cost-effective <laughs> in men and women um, and is better than some of the comparisons that we made with anti-resorptive therapy alone and then actually compared to no treatment. You might ask, well, why would you look at no treatment? Because once people have had a fracture, they're high risk, they need to be treated Unfortunately, in the U.S., about 80% of people never get treated after a fracture. And so although that's not optimal therapy, it's real world what happens. And so we compared it to that as well. So often women say, how come there isn't more research happening in menopause? 
But as a researcher, do you feel like there's actually a lot going on when it comes to menopause research? There is absolutely research. You just need to look for it in the right places. This is absolutely the right place. Anything you learned that you didn't already know? I think there are always things that we can learn, even if there is data that we've been somewhat familiar with, having it reinforced or looking at nuances and new ways that it's being presented. Um, Some of the information this morning, looking at selective estrogen receptor modulators use in the world of breast cancer, kind of re-looking at some of the uses in postmenopausal women. So I think it's been an excellent conference. Tara Ullman is a gynecologist and menopause expert from New York City who I met at the very first NAMS conference I ever attended. Aside from the fact that she's very knowledgeable, I wanted to be her friend because she's really fun to hang with. Hi, I'm Dr. Tara Allman. I'm a board-certified gynecologist and a certified menopause practitioner in New York City and the author of Menopause Confidential. Uh, and in my opinion, all women and men over the age of 40 should read it. Yes, along with my books, right? A book club. There was a lot of new information on cognitive function postmenopause. And as a menopause maven, what was your takeaway as far as what women can do to maintain cognitive function as they age? Well, I think the bottom line is that if we all want to improve cognitive health, and most of us do, we just need to move more. We really have to increase the activity piece of all of the other recommendations and, you know, quick fixes and pills and what supplement could we take. The bottom line really is we have to all be more active in terms of exercise. So that's that's the thing I'm going to drive home to my own patients. Most of us can all walk and we better start walking. And in fact, class is starting right now. So I got to go walking back to my seat. One of the things about these conferences is I tend to hang out with the people I already know, you know, the friends I only get to see once a year, but I do make an effort to meet new people. And my favorite new person that I met this year was Dr. Shira Gofrani. Just to be clear, This doctor is not new to the menopause world. She was just new to me, but she may not be new to you since she has about a bazillion followers on Instagram as the charismatic go-to doc when it comes to ovarian cancer. So you attended the lecture on ovarian cancer screening. Any new information there? Here's the good or bad news is that nothing has changed after this lecture for me, meaning I've been very vocal with anyone who will listen that we do not have screening for ovarian cancer. And it's very important for people to know that because they don't realize it, even the most educated of people. We have no screening for ovarian cancer. Your pap smear is not screening for ovarian cancer. We need to know that the signs and symptoms are subtle. That practitioner did really reiterate that it is not silent. He, I think, said it's not silent. It whispers. I always say it's not silent. It's subtle. Women are told ovarian cancer is the silent killer, which to me means they discount their um, ability to actually take some agency over it. And doctors actually kind of blow off any of the symptoms. So we tell women all the time, if they have bloating or pain or pressure that lasts more than two weeks, do not be paranoid. It is probably nothing, but check it out. The important point is for women to understand that if they don't go get it checked out and they hedge their bets, they'll likely win the bet. But over time, through thousands of women, someone will have ovarian cancer that will be missed and then will be diagnosed late. So again, the good news, I say that sadly, is that there is no, nothing new for me to report, but the good part about that is that we can still reiterate how much you as a patient can actually know about your body 
and without being paranoid again, be very proactive in aligning with your doctor so that you can get tests done. The idea that we will have one single screening test anytime soon is seems to be not very promising because the ovaries are sneaky. So no new screening tests? Maybe we'll have a blood test or maybe some of the cells that shed through the uterine lining because we know that the ovarian cancer now really arises from the tubes, that was potential promise, but not for prime time. So again, what should you know? Know your body, know your symptoms. If your symptoms change subtly in your pelvis, go see your doctor and have pelvic imaging done like an ultrasound. That's what I would advocate for. It is not simple because there are also insurance implications. There are a lot of aspects of this that are not easy. And I've already booked Dr. Gofrani for an episode on ovarian cancer screening and prevention. So stay tuned. Audrey Fenwick is a physician's assistant who's an expert on menopause. I know she's an expert because Audrey worked with me at the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause. But since then, she's moved back home to Kentucky. Audrey, I've really missed you and I'm so glad I get to hang out with you. So what have you learned? I learned a lot about bone today and bone health, but the most important fact I learned today was one of the reasons that we get jowls and sagging skin is because we're not taking care of our bones. So bone decomposition can really play a role in that. So if we want to take care of our skin, we got to take care of our bones too. And where did you learn that from? You. (laughs) Best fact of the day. There you go. Just to be clear, I wasn't the one giving the talk on bone health, but I was moderating the session, which means in addition to fielding questions from the audience, I got to interact with the panelists. And I did want to ask them about something. When I gave my lecture on estrogen and skin at another conference, I learned that one of the reasons women's skin changes post-menopause is because of bone resorption in the facial bones. I mean, think about it. You need your bones to support your skin. And with the loss of that bony support, the skin is going to tend to sag. You're going to get those bags under the eyes and post-menopause jowls. So all of that goes hand in hand with osteoporosis. So I pointed out to the panelists that if women knew their osteoporosis drugs might make them look younger, they might be more likely to take them. Everyone laughed, but I was actually serious. Hi, I'm Christy Tuftisapri. I am the founding physician of Bone and Body Women's Health. I'm a board-certified internist, but I've practiced in midlife women's health for over 15 years. I'm here. We're here at the Menopause Society Conference. Lots of friends, lots of uh, colleagues, and professional women who care about menopausal women. Okay, and on the topic of bones, Dr. Christy Tuftisapri is a colleague and friend, and I miss you now that we don't work together anymore. But I am excited that you'll be one of the experts participating in my Master Menopause Getaway Retreats. So give me a takeaway that you got from this conference. Well, it's day two today, but I do think it reaffirms, you know, we have lots of options in midlife women's health to treat people. We just learned something, we were just talking about SERMs or something called selective estrogen receptor modulators that we use um, in combination with estrogen to treat uh, vasomotor symptoms. And I care so much about osteoporosis and prevention of osteoporosis. And, you know, this is an option that we know treats and prevents osteoporosis. What I want to know more is what else can we can do to treat osteoporosis and prevent particularly uh, in younger women, uh, women who see me in their 50s. And so there was a lot of questions that were brought up. Uh, My name is Dr. Mindy Goldman. I am an OBGYN. I have been on the faculty at UCSF for 30 years. Uh, There I run 
what's called the Gynecology Center for Cancer Survivors and At-Risk Women, specializing in survivorship issues. And I semi-retired from there in order to join Midi Health. I am our chief clinical officer supervising our clinical care. Talk about something exciting to you that's been presented. So there's a lot of really interesting data that's been presented. These last talks about uh, the drug Duovi was absolutely fascinating to me. And looking at the potential benefits of combining a CIRM with estrogen to both treat vasomotor symptoms and other menopause symptoms, as well as potentially protective for breast cancer. So where my mind went is I think Duovi is a great drug. I'm interested in seeing more and more of these CIRMs combined with other estrogens and the potential that it may have for people who are both at higher risk for breast cancer, like atypical ductal hyperplasia, lobular hyperplasia, DCIS, as well as potentially for breast cancer survivors. You and I are both on the same page there. Basodoxafen, as one of the newer CIRMs that's in Duove, is potentially a huge benefit to women who have a breast cancer diagnosis and want to take hormone therapy. It's also really appealing to women who are just concerned about a breast cancer risk. But one of the big questions that keeps coming up that I'm sure you've gotten as well is that basodoxafen is not available as a standalone drug. You can only get it in the U.S. combined with oral conjugated estrogen. And while oral conjugated estrogens decrease the risk of cancer, it would be nice to have the ability to use basodoxafen with a transdermal estrogen. Would you agree? Yeah, I think um, I did stick around for the Q&A and I did hear that estrogen is not estrogen is not estrogen. My personal belief is probably the benefits that we do see with conjugated estrogen in terms of breast cancer prevention are probably very similar with estradiol. And I do like the safety data with regards to a transdermal estradiol in terms of the liver and clotting effects. And I clearly heard from them that most of the patients we're seeing in the perimenopause and menopause and under age 60 are likely, you know, they don't have the higher risks and using an oral estrogen is fine. But I personally like the transdermals. I think it ought, we do see many people who do have some clotting risks. And so I would love to see that studied. Next, you'll be hearing from Pat Handler. I had the pleasure of working with Pat for many years at the Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, not only incredible expertise, but adored, adored by her patients. So hi, Pat. So did you learn anything new today that you didn't already know? So based on the last lecture on genital urinary syndrome menopause, I often will prescribe estradiol vaginally for our breast cancer survivors with the approval of their oncologist. But I did not realize that the ring is preferred over estradiol cream as it's a lower, more sustained level with less risk of overdosing. So moving forward, I've always applied estradiol to the vestibule, but I think the ring will be my option if it's covered versus telling them to put one gram in the vagina. Well, I know that's what she said in the lecture, and it is true that a ring has slightly less absorption than the cream. But what's not true is that there's any increased risk of breast cancer when using the cream. So I think the idea that you should use the ring and use the local vaginal estrogen that has the teeniest amount of estrogen is sending the wrong message to our patients. It's basically saying that a larger amount might have more risk, and that's not true, right? No, there isn't any increased risk, but the levels have been shown be a little higher sometimes with the use of the cream. So we're treating fear instead of sticking to the science. Exactly. Celine Yeager is next up. And Celine 
doesn't fit neatly into any of my categories because while she knows a lot about menopause, she's not a clinician. But with her impressive online presence, she does an extraordinarily good job of not only helping women get to their peak physical condition, but also disseminating really good, accurate scientific information. And she's the only fitness guru I have ever seen attending this very high level conference where she sits in the front row taking copious notes and basically not missing one single lecture. She takes her responsibility to get good information to her followers very seriously. Maybe that's because in her former life, she used to be a journalist. If Celine's name sounds familiar, it's either because you're one of her many followers, or you may have heard her when she was my guest last year in my episode on decreasing your risk of cancer using lifestyle changes. So Celine, I think you attended more lectures than I did. Actually, I know you attended more lectures than I did. Introduce yourself and talk about what you learned this morning. <laughs> I am Celine Yeager of Hit Play Not Pause. It's a podcast for active menopausal women. I also run Feisty Menopause and um, people know me because I make myself known. Inflammation, I think is very interesting that there's an underlying theme of inflammation that I'm picking up this year as I'm looking and I'm like, mm, I think that's going to be really important in the care of menopausal women. And um, the precision medicine is really interesting. This past session on... Um, you know, how to do estrogen therapy without the progestins and all very interesting. I think, I think we're accelerating in our understanding at a really exciting pace. Next, I'll be chatting with Dr. Monica Christmas. And even though Dr. Christmas works just down the road from me at the University of Chicago, I only seem to bump into her at these meetings. So this year, you were the program director for Menopause 101, the day-long seminar intended for first-time attendees. I did. I did. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> what do you hope they got out of it? I hope that it provided them with a good, strong knowledge base, right? So I think many of them are wondering, you know, what do I tell this patient that's sitting in front of me? And I didn't get this training necessarily when I was in med school and we didn't talk about menopause much in residency. And now I have patients coming into me, asking me about these symptoms, asking me, are they really due to menopause? And I think they are. And then how, what can they do about them? And there's a lot of confusion. I think that they should have walked away with there is not a one-stop shop or one magic pill for any one patient. And that the, 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 I think the most important thing that you can do for your patients is first to listen and to understand what their most bothersome symptoms are, what's most distressing to them, and to realize that there is a whole array of options. And we can start up from the maybe the least invasive thing up to the most invasive or the thing that carries or confers the most risk. Um, and really tell them that it's, it's variable, right? We may try something, it might not work the first time, but we will get it right until you're hopefully feeling better. And, I, and, and also just being validated and being heard. I think so many times uh, patients are like telling me and I'm thinking that they you know, want to fix and I'm all ready to pull out the, well, I was going to say pull out the prescription pad, but I'm dating myself. We don't pull out a pad anymore. We type it into Epic. Um, but then they look, but they look at me and they say, Oh, no, doc, you know, what? I think I'm okay. I just needed to know that this actually there was a reason behind this, that there was a reason that maybe I've been so emotional or there was a reason that I haven't been sleeping as well as I, I, I once did. Um, but I think I want to try to manage this holistically. And if, if, if I'm still feeling bad in a couple of months with my lifestyle modifications, you just inspired me to exercise again or whatever. Um, and then I'll come back and I'll try something. And I think that's the thing that's always 
I have to take a step back because I'm ready to like fix it. Oh, you're having hot flashes? Bam, I got something for you. That's so true. So as an expert, anything you picked up from this meeting that was news to you? I'll tell you, my, the one thing this morning that I walked away with talking, uh, listening to the lecture that was on uh, cognitive dysfunction and Alzheimer's risk was that, um, you know, when I am talking to many of my patients and many of them that look like me that are black women that are not taking their blood pressure medicine, right? I, it, even my own mother, I have to like wring her neck sometimes. Um, and I'm always talking about things like, well, what is the, you know, the risk of, of poorly controlled hypertension or cardiovascular disease, strokes. And, and all, when people feel very good, it's hard for them to like anticipate or understand what the risk is. But I think listening to her, I knew that, but I, I, I don't know why I haven't been counseling my patients about the risk to cognitive decline. And it's a significant risk to cognitive decline and risk of dementia in the future if you're, you know, have poorly controlled hypertension. And so I am definitely going to be discussing that with my patients that aren't always as compliant with their, their treatment. So now that we've heard from the doctor that was in charge of the course for first-time attendings, I'm going to talk to some first-time attendings. My name is Kelly Miller, and I am a general gynecologist in Louisville, Kentucky. And was this your first time coming to NAMS, or have you been coming year after year after year? My very first. And first time. Okay. So what was your motivation to come? Was it that you suddenly felt like you wanted to know more about this, or was it that patients were asking you questions that you really didn't feel comfortable answering? I would say both. As you know, we get maybe 1% menopause training in our residency, even though all women will go through menopause and not all women will have babies. And I just, um, as I'm aging and my patient population is aging, getting asked a lot more sophisticated questions and wanted to have some confirmation that what I was saying was accurate and hear from the experts. No, I would say it's was confirmation that what I'd been learning and listening to podcasts such as yours was accurate. And so it was a lot of, um, again, affirmation that what I was discussing was was up to date. One of the things that made me feel really good at this conference were the number of attendees who came up to me and introduced themselves and let me know that they'd been listening to my podcast and had found them to be useful. You know, when I started this whole podcast thing, it was really just directed at women who were looking for high level information. But it's really nice to know that clinicians are also listening, telling other clinicians to listen, and recommending it to their patients. I chatted with two other first-time attendings. First time at NAMS, or was this your 20th time at NAMS? First time First at time. What compelled you to come? I began to have more questions from patients about alternative treatment options to uh, managing menopausal symptoms. And a lot of those uh, questions and uh, questions about treatment options, I was not familiar with. So I decided to commit myself this year to continuing education and to learn more about what those options are so that I can provide better care for my patients. And you did my residency training uh, 2001. So right after that, the WHI came out and uh, to my comfort level, was limited and also personally going through changes associated with perimenopause. Um, I wanted to be able to educate myself and uh, for the benefit of others as well as patients. Um, What was the one thing that you learned that will change the way you take care of your patients? Estrogen actually is a benefit 
and more patients are able to use estrogen than what we realize. It's important that we educate patients about the benefits of estrogen. Do you feel like you'll be more comfortable prescribing estrogen based on what you've heard over the last couple of days? Definitely. And learning the differences about estradiol versus the other estrogen products and equine estrogen and which are stronger, which are more potent. It is the last day of the conference and I'm interviewing another first time attending, Shailene Sher, a psychiatrist. And that's one of the interesting things about this conference. Years ago, it was almost exclusively OBGYNs, but now we're seeing so many internists, so many family medicine people, so many psychiatrists and lots of other specialties that are recognizing the importance of knowing about menopause. So hi, Dr. Sher. Tell me who you are and what brought you here. Um, I'm primarily geriatric psychiatry, um, but in the last year or so, I expanded my practice into ages 40 and up. And so I started seeing a huge um, increase in my practice of women that were going through perimenopause. And they were being referred to me because of anxiety, depression. They were having brain fog, cognitive issues, sleep problems, um, and a huge amount were accompanied by like vasomotor symptoms and things like that. But then I was saying, I think you're perimenopausal. And I was sending them to their gynecologist to discuss that. And they were literally coming back to me and being like, my gynecologist said, I'm not menopausal. And they checked my hormone levels and they were normal. And so then I was frustrated because it made it sound like I didn't know what I was talking about. And my patients were frustrated because they had been dismissed. It's so sad, but so typical that women who are going through menopause are assumed to be crazy and are being sent to a psychiatrist. And kudos to you for realizing it was hormones. So have you learned a lot this week? I'd say yes and no. I will say that I have had my own kind of journey where I have had um, premature ovarian insufficiency. I'm 46 and have had a hysterectomy and have been perimenopausal since I was 39 um, which is a whole different set of issues. But I mean, I guess it kind of drove my interest in being like, I haven't really gotten help and I see my patients not really getting help. Pick one thing that will stick with you that you're going to go home and tell your patients. Well, I'm going to tell my patients to stop being afraid of estrogen. So I graduated from med school in 2002. So the WHI had just been pulled. And so all that we'd learned about menopause was give women Primarin. And then it was like, don't give women Primarin. And then that's it. And so I think that it's been a long time and women are still afraid and cautious. And, and I, myself, as I said, like, like hair club for men, like not just a president, I'm a client. Um, but I, myself, I think I'm going to have another conversation with my physician and say, I need help. Um, because no one's had that conversation with me. Physicians, we have a responsibility to just keep learning and helping our patients. I'm a little hurt that no one mentioned my lecture on postmenopause orgasmic dysfunction, which I chalk up to the fact that I gave my lecture on the last day of the conference before I interviewed anyone. Oh, oh my gosh. Yours was the most amazing ever. I could listen to you talk all day. It was so wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. I put you on the spot, but thank you for that. I shouldn't have asked you that. No, it's true. It's true. Because I think that I have as I said, I'm psychiatry. So my male patients will come in and talk about not being able to orgasm. My female patients never do, but men will admit that they masturbate and women will not. So that's where, you know, 
we talk about male sexuality and orgasm, and we have been since Viagra came out, but we don't talk about it with women. And I think that this is the time and it's, we just have to keep talking. I did try and make it entertaining and granted it's much easier to make a talk on orgasm funny as opposed to DNA sequencing of breast cancer mutations. But the number one thing I wanted clinicians to get out of my presentation was that difficulty having an orgasm affects over 50% of postmenopause women and doctors and clinicians need to start asking about it because the women aren't going to bring it up. No one is talking about it and there are solutions. So that's a wrap. I talked to so many others and came away feeling really optimistic that a lot more doctors, nurse practitioners, and other clinicians are eager to learn and pass on this information to their patients. And I'm already looking forward to NAMS next year. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Sometimes I feel blue